Esther chapter 5 and 6. Some questions for you as we prepare to read and consider that portion. Do you ever wonder if your troubles trouble God? Is God concerned about the thing about which you're concerned? At the baseline level, most raw form, not kind of prettying it up because we're in church. I wonder if today you find yourself asking, does God care about the things that concern me? I'm talking about when you're honest, not when you're like in spiritual mode. Uh, Even if you do have a few go-to verses tucked in your back pocket that you could quote if somebody woke you up from a deep sleep, verses that would support God's care for His children, I'm not talking about can you quote them, I'm talking about deeper within, not in the mind, but in the heart. If you're honest, do you sometimes find it difficult to believe Psalm 139 that God is intimately acquainted with all your ways. When your troubles are compounded, not because you've done something foolish and brought some trouble upon yourself, but they're compounded because they're owing to the ungodly efforts of other people. Maybe your troubles today are troubles that are particularly owing to the influences of people who have sinister motives. People who are against you. The Bible calls those people evildoers or evil workers. My question for you today is not about them. My question to you today is about you. Do you then find it difficult to believe that God can actually turn the tide of their bad intentions without you having to try to control the variables of the situation to take your hands off and to trust God? Are are some of you today finding yourself in the sort of situation that for whatever reason, from your vantage point, makes it very, very difficult to 2 Corinthians 5 today. Walk by faith, not by sight. If you feel claustrophobic today, under the pressure that the world seems as if it's crashing in around you, or you find yourself tempted to fear, or to fear the evil intentions of other people, or you wonder if God could meet you. I'm talking about show up to you, for you, where you're at, to quote, work for good, Romans 8, in the situation that you find yourself in, then, good news, today's passage was written for you. What we find today is not an easy answer. It's definitely not a quick fix. In fact, I'll prepare you now to know that we're going to leave today on a cliffhanger. The situation will not be solved. But we do find this wonderfully comforting truth, and it's not a spiritual mantra for people who have actually encountered God we find the comforting truth that our God is in control. And in His providence, He is controlling. He is working. He is ministering. He is acting. He is showing up for two primary reasons, and it was in the catechism, for His glory and for the good of His people. Here comes the punchline. At all times. What we're going to see today is this. Try as they might. God's enemies, and with a broken heart I say that that probably applies to some of you, God's enemies cannot ultimately prevail. The big point of today's passage is not hidden. That point is, not only is it true that God's enemies will not prevail, that is true. That is true. But that's not the point. The point is not only that they will not prevail, it is more fundamentally true that they cannot. God's enemies will not prevail because they cannot. The psalmist declared it this way, our God is in the heavens and He does whatsoever He pleases. Psalm 115. The Lord Himself announced to doubting Israel through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 46, my purpose 
will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. We could go on. When we make our way to the end of the Bible, we find the comforting truth that neither God nor His promises have ever been under any threat. There is no threat that God's promises will fail from God's vantage point. That has never been a concern for God, though for us it often is. And though we may only see His hand at work through a mirror dimly, nothing will impede God's promises from being fulfilled. The sermon in two sentences before we read the passage would be something like this. Sentence one. Any attempt to overthrow God's kingdom will inevitably come back to God's enemies in their own demise. It's a strange but true truth. God's using the bad stuff to do the good stuff. So the first sentence is, any attempt to overthrow God's kingdom is not stuff that God's going to erase so that He can do His stuff. He's actually going to use their stuff for their own demise and to accomplish His purposes. That's sentence one. Sentence two, sermon in a sentence would be this, even though evil men may plot against Christ and His kingdom, God will continue to exalt His Son and preserve His people. Some of you may be sitting there thinking, well, so what? I I thought you had some stuff to say about my problems. What I'm saying to you is the biggest problem in the universe ought to be the biggest quandary in your heart. Evil men may plot against Christ. Nothing is more relevant for you today. Evil men may plot against the kingdom of Christ. And they will. But the most relevant news for you ought to be God will continue to exalt His Son and preserve His people. With that in mind, Esther chapter 5. I'm reading from the New American Standard. We will read... With joy, chapters 5 and 6, and it will be difficult to stop there, but we will. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Now it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms. And the king was sitting on his royal throne in his throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. When the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight. And the king extended to Esther the golden scepter which was in his hand. So Esther came near and touched the top of the scepter. Then the king said to her, What is troubling you, Queen Esther? And what is your request? Even to half the kingdom, it shall be given to you. Esther said, if it pleases the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet I have prepared for him. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly that we may do as Esther desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet which Esther had prepared. As they drank their wine at the banquet, the king said to Esther, what is your petition? For it shall be granted to you And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done. So Esther replied, My petition and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and to do what I request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king says. Verse 9, And Haman went out that day glad and pleased of heart, But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. Haman controlled himself, however, went to his house and sent for his friends and his wife Zeresh. Then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches and the number of his sons, and every instance where the king had magnified him, and how he had promoted him above the princes and servants of the king. Haman also said, even Esther the queen... Let no one but me come with the king to the banquet which she had prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her with the king. Yet all of this does not satisfy me. Every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends said to him, 
have a gallows 50 cubits high made, and in the morning ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. And the advice pleased Haman. So he had the gallows made. Chapter 6. During that night, the king could not sleep. So he gave an order to bring the book of records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. It was found written that Mordecai had reported concerning Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers, that they had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. The king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. So the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows which he had prepared for him. The king's servant said to him, Behold, Haman is standing in the court. The king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, What is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king desire to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king desires to honor, let let them bring the royal robe which the king has worn, and the horse on which the king has ridden, and on whose head the royal crown has been placed, and let the robe and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes, and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor, and lead him on horseback through the city square, and proclaim before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Verse 10, Then the king said to Haman, Take quickly the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not fall short in anything of all that you have said. So Haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried home, mourning, with his head covered. Haman recounted to Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and Zeresh, his wife, said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. As I said, we'll end on a cliffhanger. Would you join me at the throne of grace? Father, I don't know the God that everyone who can hear my voice is conceiving in their mind as we pray. I don't know if everyone here is conceiving of the biblical, one true, triune, sovereign King of the universe. But I am asking You, that God, that You would show Yourself to us now. That You would arrest every person in this room with a palpable preoccupation with Yourself. That You would capture every person until we tremble before You with both awe and worship. That You would drag us by the collar through the cord of grace to the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Bring us to Yourself. Especially the people who think that they know You so well. Come God, in Jesus' name. Amen. title of the sermon is, uh, as I like to do, pretty clunky. The Queen, a con man, and a type of Christ. That's also the outline of our sermon. Number one, the Queen. This is chapter 5, verses 1-8. through The sermon is almost entirely application. Instead of retelling you the narrative, which will kind of thread into our application, the sermon is truly application. The whole thing. I will have some focused application at the conclusion, but throughout the narrative, 
I'm asking you about you, and God is asking me about me. As we tell the story of our portion of Esther for today, the questions I have to ask you are really fundamentally about one thing. Your walk with Jesus. That's the question. Your walk with Jesus. To get right to work, let's ask a very important question. Under our first point, the Queen, our first question is, have you ever been hungry for God? Do you have an appetite for God? Esther chapter 5, verse 1 tells us, now it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms. The third day from what? The third day after when? We go back to chapter 4, which we were dealing with a couple of Lord's Days ago. And in chapter 4, verse 15, we find this sentence. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, verse 16, Go assemble the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way, and thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. Do you see it now? We're talking about the third day since she had one calorie in her physical frame. One swallow of one portion of one bite of food. Three days, night and day of fasting on the third day. You see, when Queen Esther is standing in the king's doorway at the beginning of chapter 5, perhaps he noticed her because he first heard her stomach growl from hunger pains. Dear ones, is there anything that has ever happened in your life? Has there ever been any burden whatsoever that no one gave you but God? that is bigger to you than your basic physical need. You see, our bodies tell us naturally, whether we've ever taken a science class to understand why or not, that the basic physical needs that we have are food, shelter, and clothing. Your body tells you that. You're born knowing that. The first cry of the newborn is a cry for food. It is a basic physical need. It is part of God's endless genius and His endless creativity and His good handiwork to design you hungry. He made you that way. But I'm not asking about your basic physical needs. I'm asking about something more basic than that. And I am blood earnest. I'm not talking about... Have you ever foregone food as part of a diet plan. I'm not asking you if you've commandeered biblical disciplines such as fasting because it's a weight loss strategy. I'm asking you if you have an insatiable appetite for God. Do you have a desperate plea for the God of the universe to meet you in a certain place in a certain time because He's your only we know that Esther had fasted for three days. The Jews in Susa had accompanied her. And Mordecai, her cousin, had done the same. These people are hungry for God. They are a faint shadow of the Savior, the Lord Jesus, who lived His life this way. In the book of Mark, he doesn't have time to eat on repeated occasion because he is busy seeking the face of God and serving His purposes. In the Gospel of Matthew, we find our Savior Fasting for 40 days prior to His wilderness temptations. No food. He lived by bread. But not the kind of bread that you and I had this morning for breakfast. The kind of bread that falls from heaven. The manna of the Word of God. As we look into the Old Testament narrative, we find that the Lord Jesus and Esther, His shadow, are not alone. We could spend the rest of our time this morning just detailing the accounts of the people of God, Old and New Testament, who relinquished the fork to seek the face of God. Moses, Elijah, the entire city of Nineveh, Ezra, desperate, hungry, 
Needing something more than the most basic need of physical life. Needing the giver of life, God. In the New Testament, there's a sweet, aged sister. Her name is Anna. Fasting in the temple. The New Testament church on various occasions. The Lord Jesus taught us, in no uncertain terms, in the Sermon on the Mount, when you fast. Not if you fast. When you fast. So I'm asking you once again, our application question number one, have you ever been hungry for God? Jesus said when the bridegroom is taken away, that is the age in which we now live, where our dear Redeemer is seated at the right hand of the Father on high, having ascended, following His victorious resurrection from the dead, proving that He is the sufficient Savior for sinners like you and I. He taught that when the bridegroom is taken away, that's now, that's the time between the resurrection and the return of Jesus. That's today, friends. He taught us that His followers will fast. I'm asking you if you've ever had a hunger for God. Most of us know what we're going to have for lunch today. I'm just trying to ask, have you tasted God? Have you ever tasted and seen that God is good? The stomach of your soul, a deep, abiding, desperate need for God. That's what I'm asking you. Do you have that? Expressions such as fasting are the exception. They're not the rule. But they are certainly part of true religion. The Pharisees fasted two times a week and not one time did it ever please God. Ever. You can fast and you can do it in a way that's God dishonoring. You can do it in a way to puff up your own spiritual self. That's not what I'm asking. I'm not asking what you do. I'm asking... Who do you desire? Are you hungry for God? The goal is not our discipline. The goal is our God. If others find out about our fasting, it doesn't ruin it. doesn't strip it of all its virtue. doesn't make it obsolete in the eyes of God. Oh man, I wish you wouldn't ask me why I'm not eating because that just robbed of virtue everything that I've been doing. It's not true. We know about Jesus' fasting for 40 days because presumably He told His disciples or the Holy Spirit under inspiration of the Gospel writers saw fit to let us know. Jesus was by Himself when He fasted for 40 days. He must have talked about it or the Holy Spirit is happy to have recorded it in the book. It doesn't strip of virtue the discipline of fasting if others find out about it. I'll take a risk of sharing an illustration from my own life because sometimes preachy talk just sounds so otherworldly. I'm embarrassed by my own slowness and my lack of growth in grace. That's not self-deprecating false humility. I sincerely mean that. I should be way further along in sanctification than I am today. It embarrasses me. There are too many riches in Christ to be had. The treasure chest is too wide open. The rubies are too fine of a quality not to go have them. But there is something of an appetite. There is a hunger. I praise God that He has awakened it. He's given it. He's caused it. In my own example, I have had burdens here and there that have driven me to fast. I don't think for all the right reasons, and I'm not sure if the majority of them were even noble. But as a college student, I did fast for 40 days when I was a junior in college because God had gripped me with nine God-sized burdens that I felt if God didn't answer, I wouldn't live. I was a relatively new Christian, just about a year and a half or two years in the faith, and I've only seen answers to seven of those nine today. Two of them remain outstanding. I don't know how God will answer. That was 22 years ago. Along the way, each time Tracy and I discovered the elated joy that we were expecting another precious gift, a child. Every single time, all six of them, seven counting the one that miscarried, God gave me the precious privilege while those children were in utero of consecrating a solid week to prayer and fasting before they were born. That God would saturate their lives with Himself and do more in them than I could ever possibly teach them. I'm asking, do you have a hunger for God? What, what are your burdens? What drives you to your face? What puts you before the God of the universe and say, I need 
you. Time and again, God has moved me to set aside food to seek His face. It's not unique to me in the Christian journey. It is part and parcel to Christianity. So like Esther, I'm asking you, application number one, are you hungry for God? You already know the answer to that. You know if you want God more than you want anything or anybody else. You know. You know. And Esther was in a position in beginning of chapter 5, the end of chapter 4, where if God didn't show up, she had no other hope, no other recourse, nowhere else to go. Application number two, before we leave the queen to go to the con man, One more question. We could ask so many from this narrative at the beginning of chapter 5, but I just want to ask you one more. Here's your application number two. Are your burdens under the bridle of the Holy Spirit's gift of patience? I'm not going to labor this point long, but it is a very profound matter. Verse 3 of chapter 5, the king said to her, what is troubling you? I don't know if it strikes you as important or if it impacts you that she didn't answer his question she had fasted for three days and three nights she had an army of other god-fearing people praying alongside her she finally gets her opportunity and she doesn't take it she let the opportunity pass by right in front of her without latching on to it her burdens were under the bridle of the ministry of the person of the holy spirit She's eager, but she's not impulsive. Stepping out in impatience is not stepping out in faith. Patience is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.22 Not only does Esther not blurt out her burden in the king's quarters in that moment, but later the same evening, she also patiently depends on the Holy Spirit at dinner to read the room. Somehow, and the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how, This is the direct intervention of the Holy Spirit in the life of an individual. Somehow, at dinner and in the king's quarters that morning, she knew it wasn't the right time. Talk to me about this muscle. Is it saddled? Is there a bridle on it? Who's holding the reins? Can you imagine Esther's situation? Finally sitting at the dinner table, dinner table, dinner table, dinner table, after three days of not eating. Being flanked by the king on her right and being flanked by Haman, the enemy of her people on the left. And she says this sentence. My request is that the three of us can do dinner again tomorrow and then I will make my request known. Something, or better yet, someone had told Esther that the time was not right. She depended on the Holy Spirit for the details, not her own plan. Some of us want something so badly that we can point to in Scripture that we know that God wants. But knowing what God wants and wanting it badly does not give us license to try to manipulate it our way. When are you going to take your hands off God's work? There's so many applications that we could draw here, but I'll just again state the application point. Are your burdens under the bridle of the Holy Spirit's gift of patience? I want to ask you again, are you patient? Not only when you're doing things your way, but also, are you sure that you're doing God's things God's way? Read Hudson Taylor's sermons again to the China Inland Mission when you blessed me with that sabbatical in May and June and I've not recovered from it yet, so I've told you very, very little about it. But one sentence that wrecked me was when Hudson Taylor told his fellow laborers when he was sitting in a dark place like the place about which Trey just prayed, No Christians. No Gospel. No light. Total darkness. Millions and billions of people headed to hell. Hudson Taylor sitting around a little nucleus of God-fearing people and this is what he said to them. Friends, we not only need God's work, and we need God's work, 
We not only need God's work, Taylor said, we need God's work done God's way. You can know God's will. You can try to walk it out in your own power. It'll never work. We've got to learn to walk by faith and not by sight. Didn't the first dinner seem like a perfect occasion to unfold Esther's request to the king? Look at the setting. Try to envision it in your mind's eye. Look at the room. Look at the table. Look at all the uh, attendants, the servants. Look at the platters, the plates. Look at their full abundance. Look at this moment. But you and I must learn to read a room. That's what it means to walk in the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus Himself was the better Esther. He wasn't at a dinner table. He was in a courtroom. And I don't know if you remember Him getting asked a lot of questions. Like Esther getting asked by the king. And Jesus standing before another so-called king, Herod, who's asking Him in no uncertain terms, why are you here and what do you want? And what have you come for? And the Bible tells us, quote, He remains silent like a sheep before His shearers. Sometimes the most godly thing we can do is, and I say it on purpose, Shut up. The Lord Jesus Christ was what the hymn writer told us. A man who trusted the Father's wise bestowment. That's a little picture of the queen hungry for God and having her burdens bridled by the good gift of patience. Number two, the con man. Verses 9-14. to This is Haman. Chapter 5, verses 9-14 to tell us some more about This sinister person, hater of God, hater of the people of God, lover of self. Con man, definition. A man who cheats or tricks someone by gaining their trust and persuading them to believe something that is not true. One more time. Definition of con man. A man who cheats or tricks someone by gaining their trust and persuading them to believe something that's not true. If you get everybody to agree with you about your lie, it doesn't make your lie true. Earlier in the story, Haman, out of his selfish hatred for one man, Mordecai, had already successfully conned the king, Ahasuerus, into issuing an edict to annihilate all of Jewish people on a fixed day And that whole plot was based on a lie. He conned the king. Just to refresh our memories, how Haman conned the king into issuing that edict and the untrue things that he espoused against the Jewish people to accomplish his sinister purpose. Listen to this verse. Esther 3.8 Haman speaking to the king. There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among all the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. I just want to remind you of the geography. We're talking from East India to Western Ethiopia. 127 provinces. There's a certain people scattered throughout all these provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all the people. They do not observe the king's laws. It is not in the king's interest to let them remain. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. He's a liar. And the bad news is his lie got believed. And so, to go by the definition, he is a man who cheated or tricked somebody by gaining their trust and persuading them to believe something that's not true. He is a con man. As we saw in our sermon on the text a couple of weeks ago, Haman's narrative was not true. The Jews who remained in Persia and didn't return to Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity, which is why they were in Persia, the Jews who remained in Persia and didn't return to Jerusalem were actually doing good. They were seeking the welfare of the cities in which they resided. Well, Haman the Agagite is a con man. A few applications I want to draw out from him. And then we'll go to our final point. This is, you know what? One application. I think it's valuable enough not to clutter up our thoughts with a bunch of them. i got a few, but I'm going to give you one. Looking at Haman, we're in chapter 5, verses 9 to 14. I have an ultra important question for you. What is your controlling motive? Think about it. What is your controlling motive? 
I've noted earlier in this sermon series that Esther's full of emotions. Not the person, the book. She is too. But every person in the narrative were told about their emotions. Emotions play a prominent role in the narrative. We're told a good bit about Haman's emotions in chapter 5. In fact, in one verse, we're told about two extreme ends of the spectrum of his own emotions. Look at verse 9 of chapter 5. Haman went out that day glad and pleased of heart. Emotion. When Haman saw Mordecai the king uh, sitting in the king's gate that he did not stand or tremble before him, Haman was, other end, filled with anger against Mordecai. I'm asking you, what's your controlling motive? Can I put that simply as I know how? Why do you do everything you do? Everything. What's at the bottom? In one moment, Haman's glad and pleased of heart. In the next moment, he's filled with anger. Do you see what the author of Esther is trying to do to you? He's not telling us a story. He's filleting your heart. He's helping us see Haman's motives. We're looking beneath the surface of this man. We're looking beyond his words. We're looking past his actions. And God is telling us what the man feels and why he behaves the way he does. In short, I'm saying we are seeing Haman's controlling motive. You think about it before I say it. What controlled Haman? Why did he do everything he did? What was at the bottom? Before we look at him, let me ask about you. You have a controlling motive. And one and one only. You can't have two. You have one controlling motive. If you mainly want to be liked, then you're going to be a people pleaser. Do you see that people-pleasing is the fruit? And the desire for affirmation is the root? This is the control of this. If you mainly want to be rich, you're going to be driven by success or your definition of it. You tell me the root of that. If you mainly want to be accepted, you're going to be driven by those who give you attention. I could back up and say, ladies, be warned. Look at the pattern of Esther. If you mainly want to be accepted, you're going to be controlled by a drivenness that comes from whomever gives you attention. What if you have the acceptance of the King of Glory? How might that deal with the root desire and that controlling motive? If you mainly want to be skinny or fit or wealthy or healthy or loved or popular or respected or fill in the blank, then I can trace for you in about 10 seconds the controlling motive of your life. And you can too. Oh, God, send the Holy Spirit into this next sentence. Do it, God. Right now, you know. You know. And you know that you know whether or not Jesus is your controlling motive for everything. Your controlling motive dictates everything you do. When you're on your best behavior, when you're on your worst behavior, you're still driven by whatever you're bowing down to with ultimate allegiance. Young people, kids, teenagers, please listen very, very carefully to Pastor Jordan for a moment. This is why we say around here, if you fear God, you can do anything you want to do. That's the rule of life. I think that's the biblical mantra for parenting. You don't have to have a list of rules pasted beside the refrigerator. And you know, young people, if you fear God. You know. If that's the controlling motive of your life. If your ultimate allegiance is not to the Lord God, then the, book, the Lord God of the book of Esther, if your ultimate allegiance is not to Him, then whether you're young or old, whether you're male or female, whether you're adult or child, you're an idolater. You have a controlling motive in your life that's not Jesus. And you're going to be tossed around like the chaff. And you're going to be blown around like the waves in the sea. You're going to be a different person depending on who you're around. You're going to behave differently depending on who's in the room. And if that's the way you live your life, you're a chameleon. You are a thermometer. And the temperature of your life rises and falls based on your environment. God's people are called to be a thermostat. Setting the temperature of where you're at. 
because you're rooted deep in Christ. What I'm trying to say from Haman, and I'll move on after I try to peel this onion a couple more layers. What I'm trying to say is that the reason that you do what you do is the most important thing about you. Or to put it under the light of the divine, under God, A.W. Tozer put it well, the most important thing about any man or any woman is, quote, what enters into his or her mind when he thinks about God. That's why when I prayed a moment ago, I said, God, I don't know who they're praying to. I don't know. I can't see in your mind. I can't see in your heart. You can't see in mine. I'm praying to the God who inspired this book and who gave us this letter and who's sovereign over the affairs of every man and controlling human history for his own glorious and good purposes and going to do infinite, immeasurable, incalculable, unimaginable good for all of his people for all of eternity. That's who I'm talking to. The biblical God must be your controlling motive. If He does not drive everything about you, then you may call yourself a Christian. You may have been baptized. You may be a member of this church. But if He is not your controlling motive, and I say this as clearly as I possibly know how, you are not His. If He is not your controlling motive, isn't it the most loving thing that I could say to you? To say, you're not His. Why do you want to honor your parents? Why do you want to succeed in school? Why do you want to be liked? Let's, let's make it spiritual. Why are you here? Why do you go to church? Why do you choose the church to which you go? Why do you read your Bible? Why do you pray? Why do you call yourself a Christian? What's your controlling motive for Haman? Now we're back to the text. It was self Love. That was his controlling motive. Maybe you already saw it in the text, and maybe you answered it very similarly to that, but let me just show it to you. Verse 13 of chapter 5. Yet all of this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. What's the this? What doesn't satisfy him? Well, you can see that he had just gone on a brag fest in the pre preceding verses. In chapter 5, prior to verse 13, he gets his wife and his friends. That's verse 10. In verse 11, he recounts to them the glory of his riches, the number of his sons, every instance where the king magnifies him, promotes him above princes and servants of the king, even the fact that he got to go to a banquet with the king and the queen the night before. And oh, by the way, he invited me and me only to come back tonight. All of this doesn't satisfy me. That's why Lloyd-Jones had his congregation in London read a book about religious experience. More than notion. Christianity is not here. It's here. More than notion. And so in that book, there's a poem that has been so helpful to so many. And the poem asks, let us ask the important question, brethren, be not too secure. What it is to be a Christian how we may our hearts secure. Vain is all our best devotion. If on false foundations built, true religion is more than notion. Something must be known and felt. Controlling motives. You see, we say it around here often, and may we get ways to say it better or more clearly, but may we never tire of saying it. Haman shows us the problem. Until Jesus is enough for you, nothing else ever will be. That's why last week's sermon text is so crucial. If you've never come to the place, and you know right now if you've ever come to the place, that's the beauty of spiritual honesty. You don't have to wonder. You know if you've ever come to the place like Asaph from last week. Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you, there is nothing I desire upon the earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. As for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge so that I may tell of all of His works. You know if you've been there. And if you are there, there's another set of emotions that come out of Haman 
and its sinister pleasure. What do you take delight in? Who do you take delight in? Verse 14 of chapter 5, Then Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends said to him, Have gallows fifty cubits high made, and in the morning ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the next banquet. And the advice pleased Haman. You tell me now, what's his controlling motive? It's self-love. It's totally self-love. It's controlling this man. He is in the prison of self. And unfortunately, many who can say Jesus have never escaped that prison. Third and finally, a type of Christ. We've seen a queen. We've seen a con man. Now we have a type of Christ. T-Y-P-E. That is a foreshadowing, a picture, a portrait, a shadow of Jesus. It's in chapter 6. I'll zoom in on verses 10-13 to in a moment. For this point, I'm drawing from the portion of the narrative where Haman must honor and parade Mordecai through the city square. In this situation, I don't think everywhere in Esther, but in this situation, Mordecai is no doubt a vivid type of Christ. A shadow of Jesus in this story. Outside the gate, you have in chapter 4 through 6, a man in sackcloth and ashes, weeping, praying, fasting for the salvation of his people, of his kinsmen, his countrymen. With a heart full of prayer, he also has, Mordecai, a plan to seek the rescue of his kinsmen. In addition to prayer and a plan, he also has a deep, God given resolve that God will accomplish redemption for his elect people. Chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. And we know he believed that God would accomplish His purpose somehow because in chapter 4, 13 and 14, Mordecai says to his younger cousin Esther, do not imagine that you and the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place and you and your father's house will perish. He knew God would do it. He might not have known how, but he knew that God would. And as I said, this man in sackcloth and ashes, this man weeping and praying and wailing and fasting for the salvation of his people, for his countrymen. This man who has a deep God-given resolve that God will do what God said God will do. This man with a heart full of prayer and a plan to seek the rescue of his kinsmen through Esther. In addition to all that, with his God-given resolve, this man knew that there's a God in heaven whose promises are sure and steady. And as we sing around here at our members' meetings, the elect will never perish. One or all the earth. Bought with the blood of Jesus. God's going to do what God said God will do. Do you see that the same man who's weeping and wailing is soon in our text the object of rejoicing and honor? This is especially where I see Mordecai in this passage as a type of the Lord Jesus. Definitely a real event in human history. A real man named Mordecai who actually experienced this stuff. But I'm saying he is a picture in God's providence of a greater and true Redeemer. Chapter 6, verse 10, Then the king said to Haman, Take quickly the robes and the horse which you have said, and go do so for Mordecai the Jew, who's sitting at the king's gate. Do not fall short in anything that you've said. So Haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Do you see what is happening? I trust that you do. The enemy of God's people, Haman, the enemy of God's people, is forced by the king to honor their humble Redeemer. Does that remind you of anybody else? You are no match for Satan. I am no match for Satan. And he is no match for God. The enemy of your souls seeks to steal, kill, devour. He wants to kill you. If he gets you down, the only thing he's going to do is cackle with his sinister laugh and kick you even harder. And when he gets you down, he's not done. He hates you. 
He hates your Savior. He hates God and all of His good purposes. He hates all of His people. He knows that He cannot ultimately win. But He will do all He can to destroy. And don't you know that that enemy of your soul, the devil, Satan himself, is being forced even this day and one day finally to honor the humble Redeemer. It will be Satan on the leash calling out to the nations that everyone must bow to the Lord Jesus and then He will hit His own knobby knees and give honor to the King of glory. The very day that Haman had planned for and thought would secure the demise of the One who would never bow to Him just so happened to be the very day that God planned for the roles to be reversed and He would bow in honor of the Lord's servants. Don't you think Satan was happy on the day of the cross? That morning, he thought that his sinister plan would finally and forever be sealed. And as Jesus mounted the cross, it was the reversal of the roles in the most epic proportion. This is a type of Jesus. What I'm trying to say is what Colossians chapter 2 is all about. When in verse 15 of Colossians 2, it says, when Jesus had disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them having triumphed over them, His enemies, through Christ. God triumphed over His enemies through Christ in the old warfare uh, strategies and approaches when a king would secure victory. It was not uncommon for him to take the leader of the opposition who he had defeated, and strap that man to the wheels of the chariot and to parade them through the city as he went somersaulting down the main street. It was a picture of triumph. That the victorious king was literally triumphing over his enemies in a public display. Now listen to Colossians chapter 2 and picture Haman leading the horse as Mordecai sits robed in the king's garment with the crown on his head, saying this is the way that the man will be honored whom the king desires to honor. When God had disarmed the rulers and authorities, God made a public display of them having triumphed over His enemies through Jesus. Haman and Mordecai in this way serve us to see a better picture. I've been telling the book of Esther to uh, Brooklyn and Addison, my two youngest daughters at nighttime. I've intentionally been stopping as we've done today on the book's cliffhangers. And just last night, I was telling them today's portion of the text. And at the dinner table, Brooklyn stopped me midway and said, are you going to do another cliffhanger? That's what Brooklyn said. And when I replied, maybe, Addie and Brookie both responded, no, just tell us the whole story. This week's text does leave us on a cliffhanger. But I'm stopping here with Haman parading Mordecai through the city so that we can sit with some of these realities. That the textures and the layers of this story will marinate into the fiber of our being with prayer that you and I will begin to grow by the Holy Spirit's power in our anticipation for the Lord to intervene in our life, in our story, in His world, for His purposes, for His glory, for our good, until we begin to feel desperate. We'll just rush right ahead and read the end of the story. But until we begin to feel desperate for God to act, we will not immerse ourselves in the biblical narrative rightly. As long as we feel like we're only reading a history book when we, re when we read Scripture, we're not going to sit on the edges of our seats with a deep longing for God to work again in and through our lives for His glory. Friends, I want to put it to you as plainly as I know how. In our portion of Esther, she and Mordecai believed that if they did not do something drastic, and more deeply, if their God did not do something drastic, then the people that they knew and they loved would perish. They were desperate. So the application is pretty obvious, I hope. Have you ever felt like that for people that you know and love? Have you ever gotten to the place where you have had a selfless burden for the salvation of your loved one? Grace Church, the New Testament teaches that you are the people that God has put in the places of influence. You're the one who's been raised up for such a time as this. 
so that you could be equipped with the right access to the right people at the right time so that through you, God would accomplish His saving purposes in the lives of others. You have access to people that others don't have access to. And God put you in their lives so that you would acquire a burden that God has for their redemption. We pray for these unreached peoples of the world every Sunday. I wonder if your heart is ever tugged at to wonder, might God be preparing me? Or more close to home, we pray for our dear sister and her sons to know the Lord Jesus today in our pastoral prayer. I wonder if your heart ever feels a tug to say, God, would you use me to share the glorious Gospel yet again with those two precious young men? This is the equipping center for the saints according to the New Testament. We don't depend on young queens to save people in a vast Persian empire anymore. That's not what God's doing. It's not the primary way He's doing it. The mighty saving purposes of God are going around the entire world today through people like you. And I can't leave this without trying to drive home the application. You have access to the throne room of the King of Kings like Esther did to Ahasuerus. God Almighty holds out to you a golden scepter and you don't have to wonder if you're going to be accepted. He's waiting with joy for broken-hearted believers to barge into His presence with the spirit of John Knox who in times past famously prayed, God, give me Scotland or I die. Denny Burke wrote about John Knox, his prayer was not an arrogant demand, but the passionate plea of a man who was willing to die for the sake of the pure preaching of the Gospel and the salvation of His countrymen. Where are the Knoxes of our day? Where are the Esters of our day? Where are the people who are burdened for our kinsmen according to the flesh? Where are the people who lose sleep at night because they wonder if their dearest friends are going to go to a Christless eternity? Knox was a modern Esther for his time, but he wasn't a hero in his own mind. He didn't have a Haman complex. Burke writes of Knox, Knox's greatest, Knox's greatness lay in His humble dependence on our sovereign God to save His people, revive a nation, reform His church. It's evident from Knox's preaching and his praying that Knox believed that neither in the power of his preaching nor in the power of his prayer, but in the power of the Gospel and the power of God who sovereignly ordains preaching and prayers the secondary means in the salvation of His people. See, Knox had learned through immersing himself in Scripture and walking with the Lord Jesus what Esther knew, that you may often stand alone, even in your seemingly most crucial moments. But the question has always been, like Esther, if nobody else goes with you, are you giving up on Jesus? Do you only walk with Him because the people around you want you to? In your most crucial moment, if you're alone, have you learned the Knox-Esther-Jesus truth? One man with God, Knox said, is a majority. Esther learned that truth, didn't she? Alone in the king's doorway. She had her Martin Luther moment. When Luther on trial for his life for preaching the glorious Gospel of Jesus replied, here I stand, I can do no other, dot, 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 so help me God. When we see Knox, Luther, Esther, the Lord Jesus, the example par excellence, we see the Spirit of Christ shining through a saved sinner. Haman would soon learn in the book of Esther that one young lady with God in the midst of a pagan empire with pagan rulers, one young lady with God is a majority. Haman would soon learn at the king's dinner table the following night a fateful lesson that historians tell that concerning uh, the, the Queen of Scotland. Haman would learn what the Queen of Scotland learned through the prayers of Knox. Queen of Scots said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the armies of Europe combined. Haman finally got a taste of what it looks like to live among people who fear God. Bringing the application to us, may I just ask you, Esther and Mordecai are burdened. Burdened to the point of not eating. Burdened to the point of three days of prayer and fasting. Burdened to the point of risking their own life. They were burdened for the salvation of their fellow man. May I ask you, whose salvation are you burdened for? Who can you not stand to go to heaven without? Where are your sackcloth, your ashes? Where is, where is our desperation? See, we read the story of Esther, but we don't feel desperate. 
until it messes with us. Oh, but Pastor Jordan, you don't understand. My friends don't want to talk about Jesus. My friends won't listen to that. I've already tried that. Dear ones, Esther wasn't waiting for an open door. Her heart was so broken and she had already barged into the presence of the only door that mattered, the throne room of the God of Heaven. And she wanted her people saved. So she went and opened the door. The British missionary C.T. Studd put it so soberingly well. Soon this life will be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Stud writes, Oh, let my love with fervor burn. And from the world now let me turn. Living for Thee and Thee alone. Bringing, thy, bringing Thee pleasure on Thy throne. Only one life. T'will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life. Yes, only one. Now let me say Thy will be done. And when at last, I'll hear Thy call. I know I'll say t'was worth it all. Only one life. T'will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Verse 12 of chapter 6 tells us that Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried home mourning. There's another emotion. Has his head covered. He tells his wife and his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and Zeresh, that's all his friends and his wife, say to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him. You will fall before him. Isn't it ironic that the same woman, his wife, and friends who just the night before said, build a gallows 75 feet tall on which you kill Mordecai are the same people who are radically different the very next day and unbeknownst to them, they were so prophetically true in their latter statement. Do you remember what Gamaliel said to the people convening in Jerusalem against the apostles and their message concerning the saving work of Jesus in His death and resurrection, Gamaliel said to them in Acts chapter 5, I say to you, stay away from these men. Leave them alone. Acts 5.38 For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. Or else, you may even be found fighting against God. Some of you today are like Saul before he was converted. You're on your way to Damascus. You don't care about God's people. You don't care about God's purposes because you don't care about God. Your controlling motive isn't God. You don't have the fear of the Lord. You haven't met God in Christ and His infinite mercy for a sinner like you. So you're on your way to Damascus and you're persecuting God's people and doing them harm. And if you ask our Christian brothers and sisters who live today in the Middle East or South Asia or North Africa, they would tell you sometimes His people do suffer harm from people like you. I'm here to tell you, in the big picture, in the ultimate end, in the sovereign purposes of God, to preserve a people for Himself through the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus, in that sense, if you're not walking with Jesus today, if God is not your controlling motive, if you don't know what I'm talking about when I say a hunger for God, a deep desire for your kinsmen to be saved. To tell them about the Lord Jesus. I'm saying to you that I strongly advise you to carefully read the end of the book before you make war against the people of God. Are you hungry for the Lord? Pride is so deadly in you like it was in Haman. Not to be played around with. God is opposed to the proud. It is a deadly, deadly, deadly sin. There's one emotion I want to leave you with and I close here. I've told you about the king desiring to honor Mordecai. Esther who had fear and no doubt temptation to anxiety before this big dinner meeting. But there's an emotion that is not spoken of in the book of Esther. It's your emotion. See, we read this story and if we're honest with ourselves, most of us want Haman dead. We hate him. To this day, I told you when the Feast of Purim is celebrated by the modern day Jews, they always hiss and sneer anytime his name is read. They hate Haman. We hate Haman. He's the antagonist of the story. You read this and you want bad things to happen to him, and soon they will. But here's the problem with our emotions especially when it comes to us wanting Haman dead. You're Haman. You're Ahasuerus. 
You're the man with all the wives and sexual sin and lust and a harem full of all kind of illicit thoughts and actions. You're Haman who's plotting evil against God and His purposes. You're the man full of pride. And see, the good news of Esther is not the way we would have written the story. Yes, he preserves a people and Haman does fall in the book of Esther, but when we get to the true and greater story of Esther at the cross of Jesus Christ, we don't find Jesus coming to save the good people. Esther's such a powerful picture, but it's not the most powerful. We find that in the cross of Christ, that He came to save His enemies. He came to die for the Hamans. He came to die for the Persians. He came to die for the Ahasuerus, for the evil kings. He came to die for the people who didn't care about the good stuff. That's why we sang at the very beginning of this service, and I just gently plead with you a good reason to be on time every Sunday. You hear the scriptural call to worship. Oh, how I wish everybody would have heard that today. And you hear the song which today sang, Dear dying Lamb, Thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. It's really what Esther's about. It's about the sovereign purpose of God to save His people according to His promise fulfilled in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about Jesus Christ taking center stage in your heart. Becoming your controlling motive. You fear the Lord and you have a desire for the things that please God. You have a burden for the things that dishonor God. You have a longing for your kinsmen according to the flesh to be saved. And I'll just say again the way I prayed it in the prayer time. You've been baptized. You're a member of this church. You've called yourself a Christian for a long time. But you know that Christ Himself is not your portion. And I just appeal to you with a broken heart and nothing but love. Who cares what anybody else thinks about you? Who cares what spiritual path you've walked down before? Who cares what shame is involved in recanting your previous spiritual experiences? I'm saying to you, if you know that Jesus the King is not the Lord of your heart, then the best thing I could say to you right now is fly to Him for mercy. Throw yourself into the open arms of the only Redeemer and ask Him to invade your life with Himself. Because tomorrow night, or in our timeline next Sunday, Lord willing, we got another banquet to go to. And it doesn't turn out well for people who don't belong to this God. Join me as we pray. Father, I thank You so much that You have good purposes that will never fail. You will hold us fast. And I ask that right now You would cause us all to reflect under the light of the cross to to ask honest questions about our own relationship with Christ, clinging to Him or the mercy that He alone has purchased and can provide to save sinners. And I also ask God, beyond ourselves, You would open our eyes to see a perishing world around us. And if we do belong to Jesus but don't have a burden, for our loved ones, friends, family, acquaintances in the far reaches of the world. God, I pray that You'll either fix us or expose us. Fix us so that we desire what You desire. Cause our controlling motive to be Jesus always and only. Or expose us that we've never belonged to Jesus in the first place. But one way or the other, cause Christ to be formed in us. Galatians 4. We pray this for Your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.